going to turn to the scriptures now. The rest of the announcements are in the bulletin. Um, I, I want to do something that I do from time to time before we get into the message. Uh, last Sunday, I used a song um, to indicate a, a sense of longing, uh, a song by Don McLean. And somebody who I respect very much in our congregation uh, came to me and was concerned about one of the lines in that song, um, which, which I had never perceived in the way that they did. But there's a line that says um, that the three men that I love the most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, took the train for the coast. Um, I saw it as I saw it as as a sense of abandonment that their perception um, that per the author Don McLean's uh, view of his religious faith had failed him. Um, but to the point, um, somebody expressed to me that it is blasphemous, and it is. Um, the line itself um, attributing uh, manhood to to the triune God um, is is not representative of Orthodox theology, and so so for that. Um, and only one person came to me, but I'm sure there were others that were concerned about that. I apologize for that. I apologize for that. It did not accurately reflect our theology. Um, and uh, never let it be said uh, that um, when I do something stupid, I'm not willing to admit that I'm stupid. Um, I excel at failing. In fact, it's my number one skill. So, um, so we are. We. I. My apologies to you if you were offended by that. And uh, we're gonna. We're going to make sure that we try to take steps in the future to prevent those kind of things from happening. Uh, one of, of course, one of the curious things about um, so much of the book of the Revelation as we're getting into it um, is that um, it is so misunderstood. And so we are we're through the really, really nasty parts of the Revelation. But hopefully you as you have gone through this, uh, I had that. But then I had somebody else uh, tell me this week. Uh, that the the revelation never made sense um, because of the way that it was taught um, and that they're encouraged that the book of the revelation is not about everybody gets theirs in the end, which is how so many people teach it, but rather the book of the revelation is about the exaltation of Christ and the encouragement of the church. And we really get into that in chapter 19. So I'd ask you, uh, to grab a Bible, if you're visiting with us, you don't have a Bible with you. There's a Bible in the rack in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin. But we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and we're going to talk about hallelujahs. And I had a classic rocket song I could have sung for this one, too, but I decided not to. Um, but uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead to the, to the Lord in prayer and uh, begin our look at the Scriptures. Father, we, we ask that you would open our understanding your word and that your glory would be manifest that letters on a page forming words and words forming sentences are not what we would see but rather we would hear and see your spirit at work in your people bringing about the exaltation of Christ the furtherance of the gospel the good news of man and in a tumultuous time we might find our anchor and we might secure ourselves to him and that we might endure as the original recipients of this this letter this this book were called to endure may we endure until we see your face and know your glory firsthand we pray this through Jesus Christ our lord amen revelation chapter 19 
Revelation chapter 19. This is the Apostle John, and he says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We're going to keep going through this chapter, but I just want to, I want to lay some of the groundwork of what's happening. Uh, one of the things that I, I reminded everyone of um, as we got into the book of the Revelation is this concept of the rule of two. That anytime you see two of something, it's significant. Um, it either is a, a, a connection or a comparison or a contrast, but those two things are connected. Um, and so in chapter 18, if you were with us last week, we went through a series of songs that I called the Chorus of Catastrophe. As Babylon, the great world system falls. And, and Babylon is not just the city in the Middle East, um, but it, it represents Babylon and Rome and Greece and the world power, um, the world systems, the governments of man, the, uh, the drive of mankind, and making sure that we make a distinction between our lives lived in the midst of Babylon and our place in the church, which are not one and the same. Now, the extraordinary thing, and I just had this conversation with a bunch of people this week, the extraordinary thing about that statement is that for century upon century, Christians did not understand that citizenship in the city or the nation or the world uh, system was not equivalent to the citizenship in the, the church. Um, and when our nation was founded, um, and this is, one of, this is a great cause of joy for me, when our nation was founded, my and our Baptist forefathers were the ones who pioneered the idea that church and state are not supposed to be the same thing. They are supposed to be separate. Now, you may not realize this, but the reason that there is a congregational or a Presbyterian church in every single town in New England is because when the Puritans and the Separatists and the, the Congregationalists and Presbyterians and that, that group, they were all one group of settlers that moved into New England, and their government and their church were the same thing. It was, you built a church building. And then you built everything else, and you voted in town hall and all that stuff. It all took place the one place. In Merrimack, you can drive down, down the road from here, and you can see the first meeting house in Merrimack. That meeting house was both the parish church and the town hall. That was how it worked. popularity, um, but it comes from George Washington, so I figure I'm on pretty good ground when I say it. Um, when we fought the revolution, one of the main orders of business in this new country was, what brand of Christian is our new country going to be? And one of the, one of the founding fathers came up with a great idea of, let's give everybody a choice of three churches to be a member of. 
They can be members of the Episcopalian church, they can be members of the Congregationalist church, or they can be members of the Baptist church. And the Baptists in Virginia and Massachusetts went, whoa, 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 whoa. How about you could be a member of any church because it has no government affiliation whatsoever? And believe it or not, the Baptists are responsible for the First Amendment of the United States, of the Constitution of the United States. The Baptists in Virginia, the Baptists in in Massachusetts. In fact, the guy that wrote the first two clauses of um, the First Amendment came from Massachusetts, came from Dedham, Mass, was a member of a church of a guy named Hezekiah Smith. I could tell you all the stories about it. All right. They, they were deeply, deeply integrated into the idea of freedom of religion. The extraordinary thing about the United States was not that we were a Christian nation, but rather that we were a nation where you were free to be a Christian. You didn't have to be a member of any religion. Now, we expanded that over time because back in those days, they were kind of like, they were aware of Islam and Judaism and other religions, and they were kind of okay with them, but didn't really, you know. We've expanded that to include all. The government makes no laws about that. Well, this is an important thing for us to understand because this is how the first century, first church was. This is how the first century church was. They were not a part of the government. They were not a controlling influence. In fact, they had no power whatsoever of redress of their grievances if people targeted them, persecuted them, killed them, destroyed them, took their stuff. And for the first 300 years of the church, that's exactly the price of being a Christian. So the world system in chapter 18 falls. In chapter 19, that's the chorus of catastrophe. In chapter 19, the church begins to sing the four hallelujahs. Whenever you see in the book of the Revelation, by the way, the great multitude, this is the idea of all of the righteous of all ages coming together to sing. And the book of the Revelation is full of songs. And so they sing this first song. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The first hallelujah, the first verse of this song, there are four hallelujahs in this chapter. The first verse of this song um, is a hallelujah to God as justice personified. Not that justice is something that God does, but rather just is something that God is. This word belongs here. It is an innate characteristic of God to be just. And to be just does not mean that he judges the wicked, but rather that he simply is God. And wickedness is defined by what is not of him. And it's important that we understand that wickedness and and unrighteousness and those kind of ideas... They are not entities in and of themselves, but rather they are rejections of the justice and grace and compassion and mercy and love of God. So when we talk about God judging the wicked, and, and the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed talks about it, and the Nicene Creed talks about it, and every doctrine of, uh, doctrinal statement of churches that confirm the Scriptures say that there is a judgment of the wicked, we need to understand that that is not that God is looking around for people to punish, but rather that God is who God is and all other things must fall. It is simply in His nature 
that all things must conform to him. You say, well, that's not fair. And I say to you in my deepest, deepest regrets, tough. God is God, and I am not. And God is just. And so my standard of justice is immaterial compared to his. God is compassionate, and my compassion is a shadow of his. God is gracious, and our grace and love is a shadow of his. But he is also just. He can be no other way. Why won't God just let everybody into heaven? Wouldn't that be great? It would go against who he is. To just go, ah, forget it. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm cool with everything. He is the very definition of justice and righteousness. So when we read that salvation and glory and power belong to our God, the the response to that The next line is, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. These two lines are nothing new. They look all the way back to the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned and they had their sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel because he didn't like what Abel offered to God, What did God say to Cain? Those of you who know this story know that God says to Cain, the blood of your brother cries out to me. He avenges the blood. He hears the blood of the innocent. God is just. And so in his infinite justice, he hears the voice of injustice. Later on in the book of Genesis, God comes to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. He says that the world is filled with violence, that it has been corrupted and broken. And this is a great heartbreak to God because this is not what he intended creation to be. This is not what he called us to be. So when God judges the world system... It is not because he feels that somehow that world system has a chance of defeating him, but rather he is just and he can do no other thing. Now what is extraordinary about God's justice is not that it exists, but rather that his compassion and grace and love holds our judgment in in abeyance until we can find forgiveness in Christ. That is what is extraordinary about God's justice. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Rule of two. Smoke appears before in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 14, the smoke of the prayers of the martyr rises forever and ever. And so those who would be the persecutors of the church who would make the smoke of their death and persecution rise to the heavens forever and ever, will smoke forever and ever in return. Verse 4. Then the four and uh, 24 elders, I was raised in King James churches, so I still say four and 20, even though it says 24 in my Bible. Uh, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying... Amen. 
Hallelujah. The word amen is a Hebrew word, and it means let it be so. Or rather, more accurately, this is true. This is true. This affirmation of who God is, alleluia, which means praise God. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who shall fear him, small and great. So the first hallelujah, verse 2, that is the hallelujah of justice personified. The second hallelujah in verse 3 is the hallelujah of justice uh, that is done. All right, justice done. God is just, he does justice. This third line is a response. The hallelujah is qualified by the amen. It is not simply praise God, but rather it is so. The word amen, by the way, when we say amen at the end of our prayers and everything, you know, and if you grew up in church, you, you know that, that um, uh, 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 prayers usually end in a mumbled amen. Um, the word amen, because it is the it is so, this is the truth. Uh, this is the ultimate, the, the most succinct expression of our confession of faith, is the word amen. That when we hear something, or we say something, or we read something that is true about our God, and about our world, and about how our God rules our world, Saying amen means let it be so. It is true. I am saying it is true. The Greek word uh, for confess, homologizomai, it means to say the same thing. I simply declare what God says is true. Amen. That's what that word means. When we throw it in there, amen, brother, you know, um, and we don't really think about what it means. We're affirming whatever it is that we said is true is true and if it is true i as a christian if what it is said about god is true and i say amen then every truth has action built into it i should do something i should be something i should repent of something i should be changed in some way i should serve someone in some way um the scriptures talk about us uh, loving our enemies, right? And uh, I, I don't know. I didn't live through the 60s despite my affection for their music. But I just feel like we, we, we live in a world where our enemies need an awful lot of love. For those we don't necessarily agree with, they need an awful lot of love. Let me tell you something. We, the church of Christ, should be on the forefront of changing the perception of the, the false perception that um, others might have of who we are as Westerners, as Americans, as Christians, whatever. Because there are a lot of people that have been told a lot of lies and a lot of falsehoods. And there have been a lot of experiences that have been awful with them. Uh, Lynn Swenson will tell you the story about the customs agents in Japan and how they, they had such, um, Lynn and their mission had such a wonderful reputation amongst these customs agents that they would trust Lynn with stuff because they knew he would never try to sneak something. He would never try to pull a stunt. Um, he, was, he was an honest, Jerry, she's questionable, but Lynn, 
Lynn was solid. Now, the, the church, I mean, when in the, the, the tsunami hit Japan a, a few years ago, it was the church that, it, that erupted in service and ministry, and, and, and they, they changed millions of people's perceptions of what it meant to be a Christian because they took that step. And let me tell you something. We, the Christians in this country, we should be the ones, and I know I'm going to get myself in trouble here, we should be the ones shielding the Muslims from the attacks and racism and xenophobia. We should be standing in with them. Do we agree with them? Do we think they're right? No. No, we don't. Christian, Christian theology and Islam are not compatible, but that doesn't mean I can't love them. It doesn't mean that I can't protect them. It doesn't mean that I would not lie my, lay my life down to protect their right to believe what they believe. Now, the second that they take up arms against me and my home, that's a different situation. They're no longer, now they're actively seeking to destroy me. You say, what would you do? Now, I hope that what I would do would be to live out the gospel before them rather than act in anger in response. But we, the church, we should be on the forefront of changing the culture. You know that we, the church, should be on the forefront of loving people that disagree with us? Now, somehow, we, we, we seem to have built a system that says that it's okay for us not to do that. And it's never okay. Because what God says, we agree with. And so if Jesus says, anybody can love their friends, love your enemies, what does he mean? And are we prepared to say amen, hallelujah, to what he says? If God says that the wicked and the unrighteous are under condemnation, if they do not hear the gospel and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the way, there is no way to get past that about the Bible. There is one name given unto men, all right, under all of heaven, and it is Jesus Christ. And I believe that. And I believe that the gospel is the answer to the world. And I believe that the only way the gospel will be preached is when we come into conformity with God's will in our compassion and our grace and our love in response to the reality of his justness and his justice. So this third amen is an amen of response to who God is. Now, I have a feeling, and I cannot confirm this, and I would not take a bullet for this, but I have a feeling that the way that this particular passage occurs is that as this song is being sung, as the multitude has been gathered in, and the, four, the 24, I keep saying 4 and 20, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, as the 24 elders are singing these songs, I believe that in the judgment and the falling of the world, there are people joining this choir even as John watches it. That there are people coming out of the world system and joining in with this declaration of amen. That God is not done yet. Even as Babylon falls, people are coming to Christ and joining this song. So the third amen is a response. Or the third hallelujah is a response. And the fourth hallelujah is a gathering. In verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder. 
Now imagine an assembled multitude rising in one voice to make this declaration. Millions upon millions upon millions of those who have come to Christ join in this song across all the ages. Hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. As they come, as they gather, these voices coming out of falling Babylon, John sees this with the, the ash fall of the judgment of the world coming down from the sky. I mean, all this is happening all at once in the book of the Revelation. And as this is happening, and as smoke is rising, there are people coming out through the veil of the smoke singing this song. We have been gathered to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are coming to faith even as he sings this song. And I know there are some theologians who disagree with me about that, and that's fine. They have the right to be wrong. But the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And we have this moment as these people are coming to join this choir, that the, the heavenly multitude, they're robing, they're enrobing these people as they come in. They're taking off the sooted and broken and destroyed and bloodied clothes of the world, the fallen Babylon, and they're putting on the fine linen, the righteousness of God, and gathered at the, bra- at the marriage supper of the Lamb. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, in verse 8. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In this extraordinary moment, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That at the restoration of all of creation and the marriage supper of the land, as the ingathering of all the nations, even the angels will look to us and say, you are the servants of God. Worship him. And we have this extraordinary image. And I was going to stop there, but I, I, I... I need to get the last bit of this image in because it's important. I'm not going to get into the whole, the rest of the chapter. You can read it on your own. Um, but this is not a break of thought. When people read the last, the second half of chapter 19, there's this giant war. There's a, uh, the, the, this chapter 19, verse, just verse 1, verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one on it sitting is sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war and it has this huge description of him he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God in verse 15 on his robe was written a name king of kings lord of lords and then in the last part of the chapter there's this call to the angels to come and consume flesh like kind of for a call a call to birds to come and consume flesh kind of this gratuitous image when you realize those are kind of two weird images mixed together, aren't they? Do you guys know what uh, groomsmen were for in weddings? You guys ever heard this? Anybody who I've done a wedding for, you've heard this. The groomsman's job was to fight off all the, guy, all the other suitors who might try to grab the bride. That's why you have a group of men standing next to you. The, the women, they're there to prepare the bride and take care, you know, bring her in and make her look pretty and everything. The men are there to fight off other people. Now, that takes your role as a groomsman totally different. I said that one time, and guys, guy, without missing a beat, he says, I'll go to my car and get my mace. And he, 
He didn't mean a spray can of pepper stuff. He, he meant a mace. Like, like, I'm like, okay, lay off of the Dungeons and Dragons, my friend. But, um, but uh, you know, th- this was their, their idea was that this was what they were for. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here in this image. Babylon is falling. The world is collapsing. These people are coming out of the smoke and ash, singing the song of hallelujah. They're being clothed in fine linen and righteousness. And the powers of the world turn. And we'll read this in the next couple of chapters. But the powers of the world turn on the people of God. And they prepare to attack. And at that moment, the groom arrives. And he fights off all who would do harm to his bride. And we focus so much on the carnage of it. All right? I mean, every commentator I've ever read about the book of Revelations focuses almost in, in kind of a masochistic obsessive way about all this death and destruction the death and destruction is simply the fact that all the powers of the world will crash against the wall of the groom the husband of the church and he stands against them and he is all we need husbands when we read in the book of ephesians that we are called to love our wives as Christ loves the church. When you read that line, read this chapter. Read the moments when the groom shows up to repel all who would harm his bride. Who would fight. Who would stand. When the time comes, when the marriage comes, no one stops that marriage. All of heaven and earth gather and sing the coming of the the husband of the husband of the church of Christ, the Lamb, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and all powers aligned against him will fall, and their fall will be devastating, and it will be horrible. But he could be no other way. And when you put that in perspective, and somebody says to you, well, a good God would fill in the blank of whatever accusation people want to lay against God. Basically what they are saying is, if God really loved you, he would leave you to the abusers and destroyers. If God really loved you, he would want unrepentant people to live in eternity with you. If God was really love, he would not judge. And I'll tell you what, he loves so much he must judge. Because it is the deep longing of the heart of God that all creation be restored to him. It is the deepest passion of our God. You say God isn't God doesn't work like that. God's kind of flat and one-dimensional and He's like perfect, like a bubble, you know, never changes, never alters, never. God is a a person, not a human, but a person. He has emotions, and we don't really understand it, but when we read the scriptures, he has them, and he acts on them. And his deep, burning passion is that all of creation would be restored to him. 
And at the price of that restoration is the judgment and destruction of those who will not come to him. He pays it. I believe with all my heart and soul and mind that at the final judgment of mankind, and I'll leave you with this, I believe with all my heart and soul and mind that at the final judgment of mankind, when the Lord must cast the unrighteous into the lake of fire, they will be seared and he dies. I do not think God takes any joy whatsoever in the judgment of the unrighteous. I believe he weeps. And you know why I believe he weeps? Because we who have not seen God, the, the Son of God, we have seen. He is the express image. And what does Jesus do? He weeps. All are called and so few come. But he weeps. I believe that God will weep the judgment seat. I believe that he gives every possible opportunity for mankind to come to him to simply believe, to simply accept, to simply repent, and to be restored. It is his deepest longing. But when they turn on his bride, they will be broken by his justice and strength. And he will weep. Now would I take a bullet for that? No. But it's an image for me that I think it resonates so strongly that Jesus wept over those who didn't believe. That Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How often Jerusalem would I have gathered you as one? And we are invited to live in a world of justice that has absolutely nothing to do with the wickedness of the world and everything to do with the righteousness of the husband, of the lamb, of the king of kings, of the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And I would ask you if it is the deepest longing of our God that such as would be saved would be saved, whether it is not our deepest longing. Whether we would not be willing to move heaven and earth to live out the gospel, to be love and passion and justice and grace and peace and meekness in a world filled with false gods, and some of those gods we make with our hands and some of them we make with ballots. And some of them we watch on TV and some of them we have in our own head. But there are false gods all over, but there is only one God and he calls us to love and to be. Father, you call us to so much that rises beyond our capacity. And we rage and we mourn and we weep and 
celebrate and do all those so incredibly human things. We look at a world that is broken and falling. Lord, help us to be the one to bring others out. Help us to be the beacons of light and love. Help us to put down the weapons of anger and malice. To stand with the one who stands for the truth. Help us to be your church. Clothe us in the linen of your righteousness. That we might be your hands to clothe others. 